This morning, I want to jump right into the word. I'm so glad. I'm so excited. This is the last stop on this trip in America, and I have to get this out of my system one time right now um, for you. And so this morning, we're going to go to the scriptures. This is what I'm going to do, just to kind of warn you. Um, I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and then following that, directly following that, I am going to rant for about five minutes about something that seems to have zero to do with the scripture that we just read, okay? So I want to tell you that in advance so that you don't just kind of check out and go, girl, this is girl's jet lag. She has no idea what she's talking about. She's completely lost, right? So you know, if you let me drive, I promise I will get us there, even though it seems like we're lost, all right? So we're going to start out in the scripture, and then I'm going to uh, share with you for a few minutes. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 16, but before we do, I just want to say a quick word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your presence. May your presence be manifest. We ask you, Lord, this morning to speak to every single heart. Holy Spirit, take one word and divide it a million ways so that it reaches every heart. And may we never be be the same because we have sat underneath your word. We thank you, God, that today we open up the only book that still breathes. So breathe, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read um, verse 21 and 22 out of the English Standard Version. Then I'm going to skip to Mark 8, 33 and 34, um, because they both are speaking of the same conversation, but I, I like the way that Mark says this other part just a little bit better. Okay, so Matthew 16. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Mark 8, we pick up, he says this, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. About four or five years ago when I was traveling all over the country, I started to notice something. You know, when you're in churches across the country, you start to gauge the temperature of the church and you start to sort of um, figure out there's some stuff happening that is happening everywhere. There's some mentalities that are everywhere. And this is something that I started to pick up on. See, um, if I were to ask most any believer here or in any church anywhere, how many of you believe in creation, uh, pretty much every hand would go up. Yes, I believe God created us, that we're not just the, the uh, part of a big bang theory, theory that God actually created us. Um, but here is what I love. In Colossians chapter 1, no, I'm not lost. Colossians chapter 1, it says this beautiful thing. It says that all things, all of us were created by God for God. In Isaiah, it actually specifies a little bit more, not that just we were created for God, but why, why, why? And he says this, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It is I who created them. 
Here's what I've noticed. See, I used to read the scriptures and I used to study the Bible and sit at Starbucks for hours because that's where the anointing is. It's in a cup with a, um, so I would sit for hours upon hours. And one day I was in my normal Bible study and the Holy Spirit just completely interrupted me like so rude. And it was like, um, what, what, I think you, you have an issue here, Katie, because you are reading it wrong. And I had this conversation with the Holy Spirit and he was like, who is the main character in the story you're reading? And I'm like, well, God, I'm reading the book of Daniel. That would be Daniel, okay? And he started to slowly correct me and show me this thing that from cover to cover, actually, see, we read scriptures oftentimes looking at human beings, and, and even though they were godly human beings, many of them, we're looking at them to see what can I learn? What can I learn from Moses and Adam and from Eve? And what can I learn from David and Saul? And what can I learn from Paul and Peter and Mary and, you know, all these people? What can I learn? And this is the reality that God started to show me is that in every single story, every narrative, every parable, every prophecy, every line of scripture, the main character is always God. Now we look at it as if the main character is the person, but really if we read the Bible correctly, what we do is we, we don't look for the people who encountered God, but we look for the God who encountered people. And so what we do is we go, oh wait, I'm not here to learn about David. Actually, I, I read this story, and what I really see is, yeah, a guy who is just as jacked up as I am, that's fine and good. Let's just put that to the side. But what I really see is a God who is so forgiving that if you actually repent, there is no sin that is too far from his reach to, to forgive. And, and I see that God can take the most worst failure and still use him. I see that God looks for a person who's after his heart more than he looks for perfection. I can find out so much about the character of, of God. But this is what I, I, I realize. In the scriptures, all the people that existed, all these characters were there for one reason. They were created like we were by God and for God. They were there to tell God's story. And in the main character of their, of their stories was always God. They were created for God. The doctrine of creation is to believe not only that I was created by God, that I was created for God. And what I've noticed is so many of us in the church, we still believe that we were created by God, but we have stopped believing that we were created for God. In fact, what has crept in is this mentality that instead of us really being here existing for God, that God exists for us. Here's what that looks like. That looks like um, I come to church on a Sunday morning and I feel a little bit like I, could, I did God a favor. I know none of you have ever felt like that before. You walk into church and you feel a little like, you're welcome. Okay, I did that. Okay, yes. Write a check, put in my ties, and I feel like now I have an expectation that God has to now give me the thing. So this is what we do. We, we start to dream our own dreams and then tell God to bless them. We start to make our own plans and then go, yeah, that right there, prosper that. Favor, blessing, speak it, call it, right? We come into worship. We come into worship. And if it's my joint, if this is my jam, I'm all in. This one makes me feel good because worship is for me. But if I don't like this one, I'll wait. This comes to, I do, I do my daily devotion. 
and then I don't have a perfect day, and I look at God like, yo, that, that didn't work. I, I did my daily devotion. I get a good day. What, what is this about? What is happening right now? I do not understand, right? This is the mentality because now we have created this mentality that a God is there for us. What are you there for if you're not going to help me pass this test? What are you there for if you're not going to answer my prayers and fix my marriage even though I made the mess? What are you there for if you're not going to heal me? What are you there? And now we think we're in a bargaining position with God because now we have made the very God who made us our servant. Okay. So if this, is, if this is the case, right, if I was created for God, then nothing I have is mine. That absolutely everything that I have in my life was, is given to me for God. For instance, in the garden, Adam was there. Adam was great. But God gave Adam Eve, right? Adam get, got a gift named Eve. And, but why did God give Eve to Adam? God, for some reason, he had this great big dream in his heart that he would fill the earth that he had created. He would fill it and flood it with image bearers, with people who bore his image and gave him glory. Well, here was the problem. Adam had no womb. So he had one man, but he needed to birth his purposes on earth. And so in order to do that, he gave Adam a gift called Eve, and he gave it the gift unwrapped, okay? And if you get that on your way home... You can tweet about it. So he gave, her, he gave Adam this gift. Now let me ask you this. Was Eve as a gift to Adam for Adam? Mm, kind of. Now Adam would enjoy Eve. God would meet, made very sure that Adam would enjoy what he had given him. But was he really for Adam? Mm, not really. Really at the end of the day, Eve was given to Adam so that he would have a womb through which he could birth his purposes on the earth. I want you to know that anything God has given you, he might have given it to you and allow you to enjoy it, and it might cause you great pleasure, but everything that you have was given to you by God, for God, because he is still looking for a womb through which to birth his purposes on the earth. Which means... Which means, yes, that, that means my money, and yes, that means my gifts, and yes, that means, I've, but that also means it matters so much who I marry, because even my marriage exists for God, not for me. So I, when I got married, it's not just so he can meet my needs, and it's not so I can meet his needs. A marriage exists for God. How is that? So that when the world looks at my husband and I, and they say, she is crazy, and he is the most patient, long-suffering loving person I have ever met <laughs> they can go you mean God loves the church like that even the picture of marriage was to point and give glory to God so what happened was when when the fall happened was when Eve went to the tree and a seed of entitlement grew in her heart because even though she looked around and everything that she had, this perfect life was completely given to her. She didn't deserve any of it, hadn't earned any of it. But all of a sudden, a seed of entitlement grew in her heart where now she believed she was entitled to more, that she was entitled to what was God's. And so when the stuff that God gave Adam started leading him when he was supposed to lead it, 
when the stuff God gave Adam started to lead him, it led him to a fall. And this is when the fall of man happens. So the problem is, why does creation have anything to do with this? The problem is that because we have forgotten and drifted away from the fact that we were literally created for God, we also think that God not only exists for us, but that being a Christian is about us. We think that being a follower of Christ is about me getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's about me getting healing and freedom and blessing and all of these things which do come with Christianity. But we have, we have made this thing to be where now Christianity is about me, which means it shouldn't cost me anything. And it shouldn't hurt. And it shouldn't be uncomfortable. See, the way that, that we have thought about creation has drifted to the way we now think about the cross. Now, we think it shouldn't cost us, even though it cost God his son, and it cost his son his blood. But mm, me, it shouldn't hurt, and it shouldn't be hard. It should be a little easier. We want God's place until it gets to the cross. And then we're like, no, you can have that one. I'll take the other part. I'll take the worship and, and everything else. So in the church and modern-day Christianity, this is what we've done. There's three levels of people, pretty much, we've said. There are seekers, people who are coming to church just kind of curious, want to see what this is all about. Then there's believers, mostly just believers, right? We're the people who have believed that Jesus is Lord. We've prayed a prayer. We've accepted Jesus. He's come to live on the inside of us. And then we come to church when we want to pretty much. You know, we're pretty good at giving. We're, we're kind of in there. And then we say this. Now, if at some point in your journey, you want to go really crazy, like, I mean, you want to just go all in for God, like, you just want to go all the way. We have this thing called discipleship. You could become a disciple, and our class starts next week. <laughs> but here's the problem with that. In the scriptures, there were no levels of Christianity. There were no entry levels, and like, you could, you could just live at this level. You didn't actually have permission. In fact, the name Christian was first started as a derogatory term. See, after Jesus died and was resurrected, now, they wanted to be able to target all the people who were followers of him, who wanted to walk in his steps. And so as a derogatory term, they called them Christians, like little Christ. So if you wore the name Christian, there was nothing comfortable or safe about that. That meant you were a target and that everyone was watching you. So in this text, Matthew 16 what has happened is Jesus has had this little encounter with his disciples right before we pick up in the reading where we did, right? And so Jesus is just walking along with his disciples, and all of a sudden he goes, Hey guys, I'm wondering, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people say that I am? Peter's always the first to talk, right? He's like, um, I got this one, I got it, I got it. Um, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, you're reincarnated, some say all these things. She's like, okay, 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 wait, Peter. Who do you say that I am? Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is blown away. He's like, Peter, why are you always so crazy? Like you're the, you, he goes, Peter, you are not smart enough to think that thought. That was not you. That was 100% God. 
that was the Holy Spirit. That's called revelation, Peter. You have been revealed, it has been revealed to you by my Father. And he goes, Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter's feeling himself, brushing his shoulders off, dabbing people up, right? Chest bumping Jesus. Like, but I'm the rock. Feeling himself hard. So now they've had this moment. He's like, y'all heard that, right? You could just call me The Rock. You could just change my name on all those papers right there. The Rock. The Rock will work. That's fine. Um, and so now they're walking, and it says as soon as this conversation happens, and all of a sudden Jesus starts to, now that Peter has said, you're the Messiah, he starts to say, I'm, I'm, I need to tell you that I'm about to die. I'm actually about to go to a cross. And he starts to share with all of his disciples how he must suffer and be rejected and how he must die. Peter's head is so big that he has the audacity to call Jesus to the side. This is Jesus. Hey, guys, he's in the middle of preaching. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to suffer. This is going to happen, Peter. Excuse me. Shh. Just, <laughs> guys, just give us one second. Jesus, come here. All the guys are waiting. He calls Jesus to the side. And it says he starts to rebuke Jesus. Okay, this is, I know. So he's like, um, Jesus. Jesus is like, yes. He's like, yeah, so it's just me and you, right? Me, Jesus, and the rock. You, this is just us right now. All the other guys that don't get it are over there. It's us. We're on the same page. Um, so all that stuff you were just talking about, mm, th that's a really dumb idea. You dying? Just dumb. I have seen you get away from these guys every single time. <laughs> these guys are going to kill you? These guys? You've escaped them every time. I've seen you heal dead people and raise them up. I've seen you do, you're going to tell me those guys are going to get you? That's a dumb idea, Jesus. Stop saying that. Never say that again. So having a private conversation, Jesus, this is why I like in Mark how it reads, it actually tells you that he looks back. Like, I need to make sure, uh, I need to make sure they hear this because this needs to get in the book. Somebody, somebody needs a pin because Peter won't put it in there. <laughs> so he rebukes Peter, and now he just called him the rock over there. And they're like over there thinking they're having like this special moment. He goes, because there's an exclamation point. This is how I know it's not just me. He goes, oh, really? You think it's a bad idea? How about this idea? Get behind me, Satan. All the guys over here are like, Satan, did he just call him Satan? He was just a rock. What did you do between there and here? Only you could scrub that bad between there and here, Peter. What happened? And he goes, get behind me, Satan. And then he goes, you do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. In other words, you were just thinking with God's mind a minute ago. And now you are thinking with your mind. You are thinking with that same mentality that says, you think this should not cost us anything. You think that there should not be 
a price. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, do you really think I came all the way from heaven to earth to hold your hand and walk on some water? Do you think that I came just to heal some sick people and do some cool miracles and go back? Do you think I just came to write this big self-help book full of like seven ways and eight steps to be a better you and eight steps to do this? Do you think I came here for, no, 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 Peter, I actually came to die. And so if you try to stand between me and my cross, you are in my way just as much as Satan, so get behind me. I have come for this death. And then he does this. I love this. Jesus has this moment with Peter, and then it says, then he calls the disciples and the whole crowd to him. And he says to them when he gets this whole crowd of people, I need to clarify something for all of you who have been following me. If you think that following me will provide you an easy or selfish or convenient road, you are following the wrong person. If any of you is going to really follow me, you must have to deny yourself. You will have to take up your cross and follow me. And then he says to them, what would it benefit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? This is what he is saying. If you are going to follow me, there will be not a physical cross, but there will be a weight to stand beneath. You will have to carry a weight in order to be a disciple. So I have to die, first of all, because I have to die for the sins of the world. But second of all, I have to die because I have to show you how it's done. Before I leave, I have to show you what it looks like to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me. So why don't you just listen in and stay close while I pray? Why don't I let you? Because I have to show you what self-denial looks like. So, so come close enough to hear me in the garden saying, Daddy, Father, I thought this was a good idea, but I'm scared. Please, if there's any way, could you just let this cup pass from me? I don't want to. I don't want to. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. Let me show you what it looks like to deny yourself. See, in case you're wondering, crosses were very familiar in these days. It was like us saying the electric chair. It was like Jesus saying, um, if you're going to follow me, you must take up your electric chair and follow me. Okay? A cross was a sign of torture. They, didn't, they weren't like confused and thought maybe he meant like a Jesus piece, like you all have to wear this necklace if you're going to follow me. They were very so when he said you will have to take up a cross, all they knew is that was going to be something that was costly. Crosses, number one, crosses are counterintuitive. Your intuition, your instinct, the first thing inside of you, no matter what situation you happen upon, your instinct is always self-preservation. And it is always self-fulfillment. It is always, in this moment, my instinct is always to look out for self. Not only is your intuition, but so is your culture. Your culture tells you constantly that you need to, if you, if you serve yourself, you will self-fulfill. You will be self-fulfilled. A cross is a message from God that says, look, 
this is going to be costly, but I want to tell you that the way the world has taught you will fail you. That self-gratification never leads to self-fulfillment. That really, I know it's counterintuitive, it makes no sense, but the real way to self-fulfillment is through self-denial. It is actually through denying yourself It is actually through having to say no that you actually find life. There is a promise of a contentment that comes with the cross that this world cannot offer. So he's saying, I know you sound, it sounds like I'm asking you a hard thing to take up a cross, but what I'm really trying to tell you is that path is really broad, but it ends to death. And there is a narrow path. And if you take up the cross and you walk that narrow path, there is a life, there is a contentment, there is a joy. There is a peace that your intuition will never find you if you learn to deny yourself. See, I had the opportunity to sit with a, with a famous woman in her dying days. Her husband is extremely famous. Every single person here would know him. But they were no longer together, and he was caring for her, though, because she was sick, and he'd put her up in the nicest hotel in New York, and I was asked to go sit with her. She's not a believer at all. I was asked to go visit her, and I remember when I went to visit her being so struck. Here is a celebrity, and now she's in a hospital bed, and she doesn't even look like the same person. She is in her last days, and I'm having a conversation with her, and she's got no one to be there with her, so much that she's asking me, would you come back? And I'm like, yeah, I would come back for sure. Can I read scripture? No, 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 please no. Can I pray for you? Well, sure, that would be lovely. So I pray a prayer, right? And I'm like preaching as much of the gospel as I can in this short prayer, like, Lord Jesus, even in her last moment, if she calls on your name, you know, um, trying to just take the opportunity. But this is what kept happening in that conversation is she kept asking me to bring her these magazines that were around. And she wanted to show me herself in these old magazines. She wanted to show me that at some point in her life, she had achieved something, that she was beautiful, that she was important, even though now she was laying here and there was no one there to lay with her. And this is what I learned that until her dying death, her intuition led her down a path that she thought would leave her fulfilled. But at the end of her path, she was alone and she was empty and there was no peace and there was no contentment. You can run from a cross all you want, but how is it working out for you? How much peace do you have in your heart? How much contentment do you have? Crosses are counterintuitive. Number two, crosses aren't comfortable. Jesus was not chilling on the cross. It was not comfortable. Crosses will stretch you deep and wide. Crosses are not comfortable. It's not comfortable for God to ask me to love my enemy. That's not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with that. I am not comfortable. It is not comfortable for Jesus to ask me to pray for those who despitefully use me. Like despitefully? Like like despitefully use me? I have to pray for them? Yes, you have to pray for them. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable for God to ask me to deny my selfish lust. It's not comfortable for God to ask me to live pure. It is not comfortable for God to ask me to share my faith 
faith with people who reject me. It's not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with that. It's not comfortable for God to ask me to get up in the wee hours of the morning if that's what it takes to find time to carve out to seek his face. It's not comfortable for God to ask me to actually search out the scriptures for myself instead of just hoping everything I hear preached is correct and hoping that it's God's word for me that week and I can live off that one word. It is not comfortable, but crosses are not comfortable. Number three, crosses aren't for crowds. They're for crowns. Crosses aren't for crowds. They're for crowns. See, when Jesus, this is why I love Jesus. Jesus was having this conversation, and he went because he's such a brilliant communicator. He was talking about to them and predicting about the cross he would have to go to, and just, just so smoothly and effortlessly, he moves from talking about his cross to talking about theirs. And saying, by the way, there will be a cross. Now, you will not have to be whipped and nailed, but you will have to crucify the desires of your flesh. You will have to deny yourself. You will have to live beneath the weight of when you're in business and everyone else operates under a certain code of integrity that is below what I'm asking you to. And I'll ask you, no, no, I'm going to need you to be 100% honest. And not everyone else will. And it looks like a loss for your business. And it looks like for everything. No, but I need you to. That's not a message that really draws in a big crowd, if you know what I mean. In fact, usually when you preach these messages... A lot of people were like, all right, you know, that was fun. The miracles were cool. I'll be over here. Crosses aren't for crowds, but they're for crowns. They're for crowns. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25, Paul says, man, athletes, when they're going to train at a really high level, they train so hard. I mean, they train so hard, and they do it for a crown that perishes. But he says, but we train for a crown that does not ever, ever, ever perish. See, when we look at athletes, my husband was a, co a collegiate athlete. Um, know lots of people that competed at a high level, NFL, NBA, all that. And here's what I've learned. Those people... If they're going to be able to compete at that high of a level, they have to literally torture their body. I mean, the things that they put their bodies through to be able to compete at that high of a level, it's so strenuous, it's so torturous, that at the end of the day, they have to soak in baths full of ice cubes, like on a regular basis. Now, when we see that, we see documentaries, or we see how hard they train, this, we're like, oh, look at him, look how dedicated he is, that's amazing, look at him, he doesn't care what this costs, look at him, push through the pain, oh, look at him, his, his arm is dis located and he's still playing yeah that is amazing look at him his legs shouldn't even go that way look at him run that is awesome but then when we get to the church we're like why should it hurt why should anything be uncomfortable what what ouch ow ow but the reason when we see athletes, we, we celebrate is because something in us knows that anything great should cost us. And here's the beautiful thing that Paul reminds us is that we are doing it. They do all of that for a crown that will just will sit in a shelf. It's just going to sit there forever and ever. Maybe on eBay it'll get some money. That's it. 
And he says, but we do this for a crown that will never, ever, ever perish. That is the beautiful thing, is that when you take up your cross and you follow Christ, there is a crown in heaven that our eyes cannot even imagine. And what Jesus is saying, even in Isaiah 53, he says this, after he has suffered, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And when he sees, he will be satisfied with what he sees. What is he saying? Yes, it is going to cost Jesus. But when it's all done, he will be satisfied. There will be a satisfaction that comes with carrying that cross. See, the only people that are willing to literally take up their cross and deny themselves like that are people who have not forgotten that they were created not just by God, but for God that I actually owe God my life. And so if this is the way that he says, this is the way that I want to take. As the band comes, there's a story that I love about a really, really, really rich man. Partly love it because I just wonder what it would be like to be really rich sometimes. So I love the story. But this guy comes to Jesus. First of all, he comes to Jesus because obviously all his money has not given him the contentment and the peace that he needs. There's something that is still missing in his life. And he comes to Jesus and it says he falls at his feet. And he goes, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, oh, well, you know, there's all the commandments. Have you kept the commandments? And the guy's like, Psh, every single one, flawless, like I keep all of them, Jesus. Jesus is like, hmm. So you've kept all the commandments. You still don't have the life you need, huh? No. What do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus says to him in verse 21, he says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. First of all, before Jesus speaks, I love this. Because this is a different kind of love that is not just the love that God has for everyone. God loves the whole world because he does. This is, if you study this word out, it is a decided affection. He actually looks at this man and feels a love, a genuine love for him. So now this man is standing in the face of Jesus. Jesus is looking him and loving him. And out of that love response, he goes, well, there is one thing that you lack. Now notice, God didn't say there's one thing I lack because this was never ever about money. Jesus says, in, in order to even clarify and make sure there's no confusion, he goes, he goes, all that money you have, first this is what you should do. You should go sell everything you have and give all the money to the poor. Not to me, not to the church, not, not, I'm not asking for your money. I don't need your money. This isn't about your money, and it's not about me. This is about you. So he goes, you should sell all of it, and then come follow me. This was an invitation by Jesus himself to follow him. Come follow me. And it says this, though. When given the opportunity to follow Jesus, it says the man went away and his face fell sad because he had so much wealth. What was Jesus asking him? He was saying, I need you, if you're going to follow me, to deny yourself. And what he was doing was nothing to do with his money. 
He was placing his hand and identifying something in this man's life and saying, there is something that you still see as yours. There is something that you still see as belonging to you. There is something that you still are looking to that you would not walk away from in order to follow me. And anything you would not leave to follow me, that's your God. That's your God. And so what he's doing is he's loving him but saying, you, you think because you've done, you've done a lot of good things, but you've completely missed it because I want you to follow me, but you still think that self-fulfillment self comes through self-gratification, but self-fulfillment comes through self-denial. It is through taking up your cross and following me. And this is what I wonder. I wonder what could he have become if he would have followed Jesus? What if there wasn't something in his life that he still saw as his, that he was not willing to relinquish in, in order to follow Jesus? Would he have been in the pages of the New Testament, in the book of Acts? Would he have been in the upper room? Would he have been one of the people laying hands? Jesus literally offered for him, come and follow me. But because there was something he could not leave, because he was not willing to deny himself, instead he went away and he followed the thing God had given him rather than following the God who gave it. See, crosses are confrontational. I want to leave you with this thought because some might be in here thinking, oh man, this hurts. Like, wow. Like, really wow. Ouch. This is what I love. Crosses are confrontational. There's no condemnation, just confrontation. In other words, they're confrontational like a fork in the road. Well, you get there and you go, uh-oh, I actually have to make a decision. Like, I have to choose one way or the other. You might be in this room and you feel like, man, I'm feeling, I'm feeling some kind of way. This is what I want to tell you. Don't worry. It's okay. Because Peter, this same guy, the same Peter, right? Before Jesus went to the cross, he actually told Peter, Peter, I want you to know something. When they go to crucify me, you are going to drop the cross. You're going to drop the cross. You're going to deny me. Peter's like, no. Not me. That's them. Not me. He's like, whatever. Like, you are going to. You're going to drop the cross in my face as I die on one. You are going to deny me so quick three times. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. And what he said is to Peter is, I already know you're going to drop the cross. But here's the good news. When it's all done, pick it up. Pick it back up. Pick it back up. Go restore your brothers. Maybe you've, you've served the Lord and you've realized, man, I've dropped the cross. Let's get, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. That's all. That's all. He says, I already knew you were going to do this, but there is an opportunity, no matter how many times you drop the cross, to take it back up again, that your faith would not fail. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you, this morning, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Could be that you're in this room and you don't even have relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is drawing you into that relationship. 
God could be speaking a million different things to you, but what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Because in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to respond, and whatever it is, you'll have a moment to respond yourself in your own way to God. But we have people here that are waiting to pray with you. Maybe there's something that you say, this is, I'm, I'm struggling with this, and, with this and I actually need to make myself accountable. This is an area that I need help in. Maybe uh, you need prayer for a whole host of reasons. I don't know what you're in here and what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, but in a moment, I'm going to pray. And then when I pray, we're going to sing one more song. And when we do, I'm going to ask you all to stand. And the people, if you would like prayer for any reason, invite you to come to the front so that we can pray with you. I'll pray now. They'll sing. And then as they sing, we would love you to come. If you want to accept Jesus, if you want to know more, Lord, if you need, if you need prayer, you say, look, I've, I've known Jesus and I've done the religious thing, but I have not taken up my cross and I need to confess some things to the Lord. For whatever reason, if you need prayer, this is going to be your moment. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful and it's life-changing. I ask right now, Lord, that there would be such a response in the spirit, Lord, that none of us would ignore your voice, but you would uh, hear from us a response, every single person. I pray every person in this room that needs prayer, Lord, for any reason, Holy Spirit, even now, that you would draw them, give them the courage, and compel them. And I thank you, Lord, that as we walk out of here and apply the word that you have spoken to us, that we will never, ever be the same. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.